So we're running like a little, like, we start our year slowly because we're a simple people. Um, and we are doing a little series on ordinary time um, and what to do, uh, how spirituality intersects with it every day. And we're calling it hallowing our lives. To hallow something means to make or find the holy in it. And we're looking at finding the divine, finding God's activity, finding the holy in the ordinary. Um, I'm a massive fan, and by massive I mean um, I sometimes pay attention to the church calendar. It's not from my tradition, so I'm a late discoverer of the church calendar, but the more I've engaged with it and the more our community has engaged with it, the more I've found it helpful. Um, it's basically a series of seasons that we pay attention to particular things and remember our story. Um, this is a Christian faith community, which definitely doesn't mean that everyone here is a Christian, but we try and uh, keep Jesus the center of what we do here as a focal point. And uh, the Christian calendar retells particular stories at particular times of year. Some of you will be familiar with Christmas, has anyone heard of this one? Yes, it's quite popular. Uh, before Christmas is Advent, which is the waiting period. Um, many of you will know about Easter, and some of you will know about Lent, uh, which is the 40 days before Easter. Some of you will know about Shrove Tuesdays because it involves pancakes, which is great. Um, the Christian calendar is a way of retelling our story. Um, and bringing particular themes to bear on our lives and paying attention to them, even though they may not be what we are experiencing at that particular time. And Advent, themes of wonder, waiting, weighty decisions, participation, the surprise of God dwelling in unexpected places. In Lent and Easter, there's trials and suffering and costly faithfulness, immense kindness, sacrificial love, being forsaken by those you love and by the divine. The deflation of life, of the deflation of loss and the surprise of new life. And Pentecost, just weird crap happening that we can't explain that turns all kinds of things upside down and freaks many of us out. But as you can see by this calendar up here, the green is ordinary time. And most of the year is ordinary time. And we were discussing last week how it's hard not to see ordinary as a pejorative, as a negative word. Um, most of us, our initial instinct to the word ordinary is that something is missing. Uh, just as a little trial this week, maybe just find someone you know really well and say, what I love about you is just how ordinary you are. And then just get some reflective feedback about how that, <laughs> about how that felt. For many of us, it's easy to find the place of faith in times of tragedy or triumph. For a long time, I knew what faith and spirituality looked like when everything was victory and triumph and roses. And then for an equally long time, I knew what faith and spirituality looked like when everything was loss and struggle and absence. But spirituality for the ordinary can be tricky. The same kind of tricky that we face and during those times when life just isn't that interesting. But ordinary is something that we feel compelled to escape. Travel, adventure, novelty, which in themselves aren't bad things, 
that eventually take us away from things that matter. The two moves we have in response to boredom are often pleasure-seeking and meaning-making. And pleasure-seeking is by far the easiest one. And pleasure-seeking is not bad. But if pleasure-seeking is our only form of escape, there's a good chance it'll take us away from things that might transform us. This feeling of the ordinary being pointless strikes some people regularly and others in particular seasons. We'll talk a bit about vocation and a sense of calling later on in this little series. But for those of us, for those um, of you who are lucky enough to find your work particularly meaningful, sometimes it's having that work taken away from you for various reasons. That can reveal how dependent we are on our roles in life to provide meaning for us and how poor we are at finding meaning and richness and the divine in other areas of life. Obviously, it's a great thing to have a deep well of meaning connected to our job or our role, but the danger is that we struggle to learn how to find or create meaning outside of it and inevitably give more and more of ourselves to our work to the detriment of other parts of our lives. Lots of parents experience this as well when kids leave home and suddenly, for some, it's a great liberation and freedom and relief. Um, for others, it's a sense of trying to refine yourself in the world and saying, what am I now, now that my primary job is not getting a teenager out of bed? We've attached a lot of weight to what is it that you do and perhaps don't pay enough attention to who is it that you are. Uh, I am, I've got a three-year-old and I've been lucky enough to have, I've, uh, since he's been very young, been lucky enough to look after him a couple of days a week. And um, it's an interesting job for a person like me. I love my son and I love parenting for the most part. But I'm a very meta person. I love ideas and problem solving and fixing things and thinking about stuff. And parenting is insanely boring most of the time. There are bits of it. It's like war, long periods of boredom <laughs> interjected by extreme excitement or terror. And sometimes days <laughs> alone with a toddler, and particularly being a dad because you don't get set up with mums groups and things. And so your network of people that you can actually spend time with is pretty limited. Sometimes days just keeping your head down to pay attention to what's going on in front of you is really, really difficult. Um, I'll often get just lost in my thoughts, and sometimes I'll be walking around the house and Meg will go, where are you? And I'll be like holding something standing in the hallway, just like staring off into the distance. <laughs> I think I'm going to become quite senile if I age. Just warning you if I'm still around. You might have to just like usher me the right direction. And same when I'm sitting with Hemi, often we'll be playing. And it's an actual, it's really difficult to keep my gaze, to keep my mental gaze down, present with the thing in front of me, rather than escaping off into solving some philosophical quandary that is beyond my pay grade. We touched on this quote last week from Frederick Buechner, which has haunted me because the first time I read it, 
I felt like there was something really profound in it, and I knew that I actually didn't really understand it. It was so foreign from my life, so I'll read it out. Listen to your life. See it for the fathomless mystery that it is. In the boredom and pain of it, no less than in the excitement and gladness. Touch, taste, smell your way to the holy and hidden heart of it. Because in the last analysis, all moments are key moments. And life itself is grace. And by grace, Frederick means an encounter with the divine somewhere where God is present. All moments is all moments are key moments, and life itself is grace. So we want to in the series spend some time talking about where meaning and spirituality and God's activity fits into ordinary life. Ask the questions of where God is present and active in ordinary time, in the mundane. Ask what God is trying to do and what spirituality looks like on just another Tuesday. I grew up wanting to do great things for God. I was one of those people. I wore a Just Jesus t-shirt on school mufti day that looked like the Just Jeans logo because I was sure that someone would find Jesus through it. I didn't have many friends, and I still can't really work out why. And I wanted to do something significant and great. When I was 18 or 19, you should see the number of sermons I had. 18-year-old me preached about changing the world and making a splash and doing something amazing. I didn't always really know what they meant, but it was very exciting. (laughs) It always meant something spectacular, something significant, something that people would pay attention to and somehow something that had me in the middle of the spotlight. God was in the business of doing things quickly. I grew up a Pentecostal, um, so some of you will be familiar with this language. And I'm still very fond of much of Pentecostalism and much less fond of other bits of it. But God was in the business of doing things quickly, radical transformations, turnaround testimonies, instantly changed lives. And the great thing about a testimony is it was like the high point of your life and then everything got better from there. Nothing ever went backwards. This was mostly because my faith tradition was obsessed with God being big and powerful. And that flowed into the idea of big being good. And it fed the part of me that deeply wanted to matter. If I was involved in something large, something others paid attention to or applauded, if I could somehow be the hero of the narrative, then no one could deny that my life mattered and that God was extremely pleased with me. After multiple burnouts, breakdowns, and faith crises over a few short years, in all my brilliance, I began to wonder if this is really the right path. And at the heart of the issue was the question, what's God doing in the world? I was raised to believe that God was doing miracles, really obvious, really large ones, saving lost souls in a format that could be clearly counted in a spreadsheet and growing enormous churches. And I mean, sure, there were other things going on, but those are the really important ones. And that's not to disparage those things in particular, because there's still truth that remains in them. But something changed for me when I started working with a bunch of kids who turned up to a youth group who were very, very unlike me (laughs) from all the wrong neighborhoods. And it wrecked it all for me. 
By chance, I started working in really rough communities, and my dream of becoming some kind of savior quickly died. What these kids needed was, wasn't something dramatic or efficient. It was slow and faithful. Time, care, attention, forgiveness, stability, deep understanding. It was efficient, and most of the time it had little chance of bringing any kind of measurable change. But it took working with people very different to me to realize that people very similarly to me needed the same things. I didn't realize it at the time, but what I was learning is that this was what I needed too. Slower time, allowing myself to be cared for, paying attention to my body and to my needs and to those around me. I was very good at rallying troops and getting people to do things, but not quite as good at looking at the cost that it took in their lives. I learned the hard way that a lot of the most important things in life can't be done when you're moving at light speed. Changing a tire on a moving vehicle can cause grievous bodily harm. God, in these times of breakdown, in these times of slowing down, in these times of realizing that my hopes of being a hero in the narrative of these young people's lives was very misguided. God had become extremely small, and for the first time in a long time, this wasn't a bad thing. Becoming integrated humans is a lifelong work. Being present in the ordinary and the slow and the mundane lets us come face to face with ourselves, our drives, our missing pieces. And for me, I realized this is one of the things that most terrified me about slowing down is how much I saw of myself during those times. It's much easier to keep busy, to keep going, to keep moving, to not ask questions about why we do what we do. Parker Palmer, who's a, um, a Quaker theologian and writer, writes this about the soul. The soul is like a wild animal. Tough, resilient, savvy, self-sufficient, and yet exceedingly shy. If we want to see a wild animal, the last thing we should do is go crashing through the woods, shouting for the creature to come out. But if we are willing to walk quietly into the woods and sit silently for an hour or two at the base of the tree, the creature we are waiting for may well emerge. And out of the corner of an eye, we will catch a glimpse of the precious wildness we seek. What I've learned being around a lot of people who really want to make a difference, noble, good, kind, genuine people, is that unless we learn to be integrated people, unless we learn what it is to pay attention to what drives us, what pushes us forward, to how God is trying to transform us, to seeing the real effects of our actions on ourselves and on the people around us, will unwittingly leave a path, path of destruction in our wake. Many of the best-intentioned people bring chaos into the lives of those around them because they're not good at paying attention. And this is potentially all of us. 
this well-trodden verse in Romans. So here's what I want you to do, God helping you. Take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, your eating, your going to work, and your walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do. Don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit in without even looking. Instead, fix your attention on God and be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize what God wants for you and quickly respond to it. Unlike the culture around you always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, God brings the best out of you and develops well-formed maturity in you. Paul's highlighting here the ordinary, the everyday. This is in a culture where um, honor was everything. We're trying to outdo and outstrip each other, trying to find ways of climbing over other people to get to the top of the social sphere, unless you're one of the 80% of people who were slaves and your life was pretty trash. But Paul's saying that in this process, there's some kind of transformation that's happening that God's kind of trying to call us into some kind of reflection of the divine. And it's in the ordinary moments that these things manifest. because we're proof texting here. Let's jump to 1 John. Beloved, let us us love one another, because love is of God, and everyone who loves is begotten of God and has knowledge of God. Those who do not love have known nothing of God, for God is love. God's love was revealed in our midst this way by sending the only begotten into the world, that we might have faith through the anointed one. Love then consists in this, not that we have loved God, but that God has loved us and sent the only begotten to be an offering for our sins. Beloved, if God has loved us so, we must have the same love for one another. No one has ever seen God, yet if we love one another, God dwells in us, and God's love is brought to perfection in us. This vision of being unable to see God except through the love we have for another person. It's a really challenging one. There's nothing particularly grandiose about it. It's incredibly ordinary. John is trying to point us towards seeing God I feel like there's easy transcendence and difficult transcendence. Easy transcendence often comes in crowds and loud places. Transcendence that we receive just by being a part of us. And they can be a really powerful experience. Um, Sorry, just by being a part of it. And they can be really powerful experiences. But it can also fade really quickly too as soon as you leave that environment. Hard transcendence, the transcendence that comes by seeing God and love of another human and all of their humanity, is much more difficult, but can also last and stay with us much longer. Becoming a home in the world for those who need a sanctuary is a difficult thing to do, but it's something that we all need in each other. Doing projects for the needy 
for people who are profoundly different than us? Is there any easy way of fitting a particular kind of saviour narrative? But if we can't do these things, if we can't see God, if we can't see God working in lives that look very much like ours, in workplaces, in friendships, then it's really easy to slip into an understanding of the divine being present when we get to be the star. When I think this, this verse is pushing us towards something much more subtle, something much slower, and something far less glamorous, but potentially really rewarding. The thing I love about the passage from John that we read at the start, where Jesus turns water into wine, is just how local and personal and insignificant it is. It's some random wedding in Cana that we don't know any of the people. They weren't important in any particular terms. We don't know their names. And yet it's the site of Jesus' first miracle. You've got these people who are celebrating something deep and significant and meaningful in their lives, who have run out of wine, which is a site of great shame in that culture because hospitality is so important. And you see God turning up and meeting this very concrete and particular and irreverent need of people wanting to get more drunk than they already are. Doesn't Jesus have better things to do than worry about the dignity of a family when there's so much trouble in the world? But it's interesting that this is where Jesus starts. Something concrete, something particular, something in front of him. That in that moment, his mother's concern really matters. What if much of what God is doing in the world is hidden in the ordinary? Healing, creating, restoring, reconciling, making beautiful. I don't want to steer us away from um, vocation or from feeling called to do particular things in our world. But if those things become distractions that are everyday lives, that the people who have to hang out with us all the time, those poor people who work around Christian assholes and hate Jesus for it, that if we just sort our shit out as people, that if we pay attention to what our lives are actually producing outside of the projects that we're a part of, that we learn what drives us and what pushes us forward and where's that coming, where that's coming from. If we're going to learn to pay attention to those boring Tuesday things and find God in the midst, then maybe we will be a home in the world, a site of love and kindness and forgiveness and deep understanding. Spirituality for ordinary time is about paying attention to what God is doing in the world, not just in the grandiose, but in the mundane. It's about giving space for letting our soul to emerge 
that wild animal that we need to see. It's the idea that in every moment, God is trying to form us into creatures who bring forth life. Normally, in our community, we have way less of me talking and way more of you lot, which is always far better. Um, but just as we enter the series, I just want us to, we'll, we'll have lots of time in the series to process stuff together and to discuss. But just as we um, enter into it, I just want us to sit with it for a couple of weeks. Maybe next week we'll have some more chance for some feedback and response. Um, so we're going to close with communion. This incredibly ordinary thing. Um, and as we gather around the table, um, our form of response today might just be one-line prayers that if anyone would like to pray, a one-line prayer in response to God in the ordinary. It might be a request. It might be thanksgiving. Um, I'd invite you to do so.